Well, hey, we're back in Hebrews today. I have been looking forward to this so much. Um, Some have likened the study of the book of Hebrews to experiencing a spiritual nosebleed because it is chock full of such awesome stuff. And today we're going to see a truth to enrich us. I want you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 5. And when you find that, if you are able and willing, I'd like to ask you to stand with me to read God's word. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 5, beginning at verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how strong and powerful it is. And we pray, Lord, you would speak to us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. We are constantly reminded that life is full of pain and suffering. This past week, it was the Virginia Tech massacre. Eight years ago, it was Columbine. Seems like every day we hear news that shocks us less and less. We live in a world that is starving for truth and drowning in tears. And personally, we deal with struggles and troubles and trials and temptations, both internal and external. Trouble with family, trouble with coworkers, and trouble with anybody who gets in our way and tries to stop us from getting what we want. If only life were easy. If only life were painless. One of the best lessons we can learn is this. There is no easy button in life. It doesn't exist, but we still look for it. We look for it all the time, even though it does not exist. I remember when I was in high school, I, found, I tried to find it in math class. You see, I found out that the answers were in the back of the book, the, the odd-numbered answers, and so I went straight there. The problem was I did that in algebra, I did that in geometry, I did that in trigonometry and algebra too. And I got out of high school knowing how to uh, do ad- addition and subtraction, but because I cheated through the stuff I needed to learn, I did not learn math, and I had to learn it on the remedial track in college. 
I also, had, I also tried to find the easy button when I ran cross-country and track in high school. Ran for four years. I went from being the freshman MVP in cross-country to JV the next year. Why? Well, first of all, when I was a freshman, I would get up at 5.30 every morning. I would ride my Schwinn 10-speed bike six miles to Downey High School and then run six miles. And then in the afternoon, I would do another workout. I was the most committed runner, and it showed in the results. Problem was, after the first year, got lazy, got arrogant, got uh, comfortable, didn't want to put in the work. We search for the easy way in life. We want the path of least resistance. I mean, when I'm reading the Bible, I want to open up and find all the verses that comfort me. I want to find something comforting. I don't want to read about the pain. I don't want to read about the suffering. I want to feel good. The problem is God's method for learning is through pain and suffering. We learn our best lessons through suffering. If things were easy, we'd never learn. If things were easy, we'd never grow. C.S. Lewis spoke of the problem of pain, that that is the lot of every human being. U2's Bono wrote that the heart that hurts is the heart that beats. Pain and suffering is a part of the human condition. It's God's megaphone to get our attention. Now, early on in life, we, we learn that life is hard. But we also learn that finding the answers to our questions is even harder. Why such senseless acts of violence? Why do we hurt so much, both physically and emotionally? Why do bodies waste away? Why do marriages crumble? Why do friendships sour? We always want to blame somebody else. We always want it to be someone else's fault that it happened. There's a lot of excuses. But I don't hear human depravity and sin being blamed very often. But it's the main culprit. Our daily, moment-by-moment struggle is with sin. Because of it, everything is in process of decay. Relationships crumble. Dreams fade. Careers take a nosedive. Life on earth, while it's filled with these moments of joy and happiness, is hard. It's painful. We suffer. Life is a harsh and lonely wilderness. And we cannot find the answers within ourselves. And seeking fulfillment in man just leads to death. And I am not afraid to state the obvious Sunday school answer that Jesus is always the best and only answer. Jesus is always the right answer. He's the answer the book of Hebrews continuously points to. The writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to Jews that were scattered throughout the eastern world. They were in danger of drifting from their newfound faith in Christ. Some were born-again believers. Others were convinced but not born again, and others were merely skeptical, kind of on the fringes. So far in our study of the book of Hebrews, we have seen that God has spoken in Jesus Christ, who is better and greater and stronger than anyone or anything. 
We've learned that we need to pay attention so we don't drift away from what we've heard. That we are not to neglect the great salvation that's been given to us. In chapter 4, we saw that Jesus is our great high priest, our representative, and that we can draw near to him because he knows us, he understands us. And now the author of Hebrews is elaborating on this point even further. Because of man's kind sin, he needed a priest. And in Hebrews chapter 5, the first four verses is pointing to Aaron's priesthood. That's what's in view here. Now, the, the idea of a priesthood was not any new idea uh, when, it, when it came to Aaron. Uh, when God appointed Aaron as the priest and the Levites to, to be uh, the priesthood. From Adam to the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, the, the, the male head of the family had the responsibility before God to offer sacrifices. And after the exodus, God set apart the firstborn male of every family for priestly service. But when Israel made the golden calf, do you remember that? They, they said, we threw the gold in and uh, out came this calf. Uh, they made the golden calf, they worshipped it, and God then chose the tribe of Levi to take the place of the firstborn males. Aaron was the head of this priesthood. God said in Numbers chapter 8, uh, verse 19, that he had given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons from among the children of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. And for this priesthood, God gave specific requirements. The first thing that we see in this passage is that they had to be human. That'd be human. No, no angel could do the task. In verse 1, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. They were taken from among men. They were human, and they were appointed on behalf of men to represent men before God. In things pertaining to God, the God things, God stuff, spiritual matters. They did not mediate between men. They did not represent God. They represented man before God. They had to be human, first of all. And the second thing they had to be is called by God. Look at verse 4. No one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Priesthood was by appointment only. There were to be no self-appointed priests, even though there were times when people appointed themselves priests and they suffered the consequences. There would be no self-appointment here. Moses' brother Aaron was chosen by God for his role. Now, there was another requirement in those days. You had to come from the right tribe and be able to prove it. The requirements, human, and called by God. And then there was a purpose. The purpose of their ministry matched the requirements. First of all, being called by God, they were to offer sacrifices for sins. Look at verse 3. Because of it, because of, being, because of being a sinner himself, he was obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. They were appointed in things pertaining to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, as verse 1 says. They had the privilege of bearing God's truth, that mankind needed forgiveness due to sin and that only God could provide it. They offered sacrifice for themselves as well as for the people. Truth is, all people sin, all people need to be saved from sin, 
And though we might not understand how we can be sinners due to Adam's fall, that Pascal called it an offense to reason. The doctrine of original sin seems to be an offense to our reason. But once we accept it, it makes total sense of the human condition. Pascal said this, Doubtless there is nothing more shocking to our reason than to say that the sin of the first man has rendered guilty those who, being so removed from its source, seem incapable of participating in it. Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine, and yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. Sin is ultimately a lack of conformity to the character and to the will of God. It's, 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 it's messy, and it messes us up. And that's an understatement, isn't it? It messes us up royally. It's an understatement to even say that. We are so messed up by sin, but also it does something good for us. It reminds us that we are human. It reminds us that we need God. It reminds us that we need forgiveness, that we need cleansing. It's not easy. Sin must be dealt with. They say confession is good for the soul. So I'm going to do a little confessing today. There's something that my family has been saying to me that they said is, is wrong in my understanding about something for quite some time, going on nine years. And I, have very, I am stubborn. It has to do with the front yard. We moved in about nine years ago, and uh, the, the family started saying that there's, the weeds are, the grass is weeds. I said, no, 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 it's, it's grass. We water it, we mow it, and all that. I've, I, I, I would not admit it. I would not break down and, and, and let it die and put new sod in. I wouldn't go seed it. it. I just kept watering the weeds. Then a couple weeks ago, I finally... I went out there, and, and my neighbor actually said to me, hey, um, you probably might want to dig those round things up that are growing, the, you know, the grass? No, no, the weeds. So I started digging it up. And, uh, you know, surface, just cutting it, get, digging under the surface and getting it out. And then I looked below the surface. And I knew those weeds were coming back the next week. So I got down on my hands and my knees, and I took my bare hands, and I... I I reached down in between the roots and then I started pulling and, 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 and twisting and then foot-long, you know, roots of weeds were coming out. My front yard right now looks like a war zone. But I'll tell you what, I extracted it. It ain't coming back. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't get all of it. But the stuff I pulled out, but I'll tell you something, that's like, and I told my son, I said, you know what? This is like a root of bitterness taking hold that defiles many. Sin is like that. And I'll tell you what, you don't just do the surface. You see, when God dealt with our sin problem, he didn't just deal with the surface. He didn't just deal with the outward appearance. All the way to the roots. It's painful. It's painful extracting idols. It's painful extracting sin out of our life. The priest was to offer sacrifice for sins. No sin, no need for a priest. But plenty of sin, so a lot of need for a priest. These priests were called by God, so they had to offer, offer sacrifice for sin. Secondly, they were human, 
So they had to be able to deal gently with those they worked with. In verse 2, they were to deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. They were to have compassion. The Greek verb, uh, metreopathane, literally means to suffer a little or moderately. Now, I was surprised. I figured it meant it would mean to suffer immensely. But what this is pointing to is this. The priest had to maintain a balance between apathy, no feeling at all, and self-absorption. You ever have somebody, you go to somebody with a problem and, and you're sharing with them and they start telling you about their problems and you're like, I don't want to hear about your problem. I got problems. You need to help me. Sometimes you either feel nothing and there's apathy or you feel so much empathy you start working on your own issues and you get self-absorbed. They were to have this balance between that and he couldn't be cold. But he couldn't condone sin either. He had to balance uh, Justice with love and with tenderness. Able to sympathize because they felt the same pain. Able to sympathize because they shed the same tears. They could deal gently, which literally means to hold their emotions in check. Restrain themselves from anger and frustration and resentment when they were dealing with people who were ignorant, who just didn't know or just didn't get it. And also dealing with those that were going astray. The misguided, the wandering. Why? Because they were just like them. The priests that were called by God were just like the people they were representing to God. Each priest had this built-in reminder, a constant reminder of his own frailty and, and, and weakness. And the priest had to be able to deal gently or he would be in danger of forgetting that he was in need of forgiveness just like the people he represented. It's hard to keep our emotions in check, isn't it? We have trouble keeping our emotions in check, whether it be the boardroom, the basketball court, or anything in between. Wherever we find ourselves, we have trouble with that. And the high priest had to be able to deal gently Sadly, most of the priests didn't meet the requirements. They may have come from the right tribe, but they either didn't have the call or the character to fulfill their duties. Most of the time, it was the idea of not having the character to fulfill what God had called them to fulfill. The representatives God ordained to do the work. They were to serve him as they served the people. That was the nature of Aaron's priesthood. And some carried it out faithfully, and we have uh, ample examples of those who did not. Now, in this passage of Scripture, there's another priesthood. There's another priesthood mentioned. Melchizedek's priesthood. It's a hard word to say. It's a hard word to spell. And is a really tough character to figure out. Melchizedek is a mystery man. He comes on the scene with no warning Coming out of nowhere in Scripture. And we're going to meet him again soon in Hebrews chapter 7. In fact, here's what I'll say right now. No notes on Melchizedek today. Later. Wait until chapter 7. Can you wait with me? All right. For now, suffice it to say that the writer of Hebrews is showing that Jesus was not a priest according to Aaron's priesthood. Or the Levites. He did not come from that tribe. He came from the tribe of Judah. But he was a priest according to an order that was introduced prior to the Levitical priesthood. 
the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned two times in the Old Testament. That's it. Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110. And Melchizedek was a king. He was also a priest, just like the Messiah would be. Melchizedek's priesthood points to a greater priesthood, Christ's priesthood. The high priest had to be both human and called by God. And in verses 5 through 10, we see that Jesus, as the representative of the human race, fulfilled all the requirements. He was both human and he was appointed by God. And the first thing we see is that he was appointed by God. In verse 5, we read, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest, but he who said to him, the Father did that. And he said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He was divinely called. He did not appoint himself. He was not selfishly ambitious in his ministry. He was totally preoccupied with doing the will of the Father. He said of himself, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. As proof, the author gives two verbal statements made by the Father to the Son. And the first I just read was from Psalm 2, verse 7. It's already been quoted in in Hebrews 1, 5. It stresses the human nature of the divine Son. Uh, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. The other is Psalm 110 and verse 4. And it states that the actual divine appointment of Christ to the priesthood. In Psalm 110, it begins, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. And then look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is settled. This is secure. What is it? It's this. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Jesus. Speaking of Jesus. Jesus was appointed by God. Very clear. Jesus is also compassionate. Compassionate. In verses 7 and 8, we read that in the days of his flesh... He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Jesus is compassionate. He he is able to deal gently with us because, because he learned in the days of his flesh. He was a man. While on earth, he it is said he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and man. He learned. He learned through his prayer in Gethsemane. In fact, go to Mark chapter 14. The the Garden of Gethsemane is three times in the Gospels, in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here in 14, starting at verse 32, Jesus comes to the place named Gethsemane. He says to his disciples, sit here until I've prayed. This is before he had been betrayed by Judas, before he had been arrested, before he was before his accusers and before Pilate and being mocked and then crucified. And he comes to the garden, he says, stay here until I have prayed. And he takes with him Peter and James and John. And in verse 
33, it says that he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he says to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little while beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then over in Luke, chapter 22, in verse 40, another account of the same situation, he says to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony... He was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. You know, when we, we come to these verses, we are standing on holy ground. We are reminded of the tears that fell like drops of blood as Jesus faced the ultimate challenge of separation from his heavenly father, taking our place and offering himself as a sacrifice for our sin. A lot of views of what he was asking for. Take this cup away. One idea is that he knew, we know from other places, that he knew he would suffer, he knew he would die, he knew he would be raised on the third day. And that maybe he was not asking to not go through it, but asking not to stay in that state of separation from the Father. Pointing to the resurrection. Going through death and taking the entire weight of sin upon himself and then being taken through that, out of death into life. It's interesting, he learned despite being divine. He is God, and God has never had to learn one thing. He knows everything. But here Jesus, who laid aside his privileges, who laid aside and came and took the form of a servant, and it says that he learned obedience through the things he suffered. You see, Gethsemane foreshadowed Golgotha. And he can sympathize with us. He sympathizes with us because, because he suffered. And I find myself asking often, why? Why are certain things allowed in life? Why do certain things happen? Why the pain and suffering in life? Why the struggle with unforgiveness? Why the disconnect between what I say I believe and how I really live? Why? Because we're sinful and life is hard because of it. We need a perfect priest. And we have one in Jesus. One who understands us better than anyone. And Jesus deals with us gently, compassionately. Jesus was appointed by God. He is compassionate. And also, Jesus offered sacrifice for sins. Verse 9 says that having been made perfect, 
He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He was the willing, obedient substitute in our place and became the unique high priest representative of us in heaven. Through his incarnate human experience, through becoming a man and dying in our place, he became what he was not before, the Savior. He became the author of God's salvation program. The basis was his perfection, the perfection of his work. When at the cross he said, it is finished. His work was perfect. And he finished it. And the result was the giving of salvation to all who obey him. And that obedience is not, a, a re, uh, the, the giving of the salvation is not a, a reward for good behavior. Uh, obey here is synonymous with faith. In fact, go to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 speaks of our faith. And in Romans 4, verse 5, we read this. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Then flip over to Romans 6 and verse 17. But thanks be to God that through that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And then chapter 10 and verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah said, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Obey here is synonymous with faith in Christ. And the recognition of Jesus' human divine saviorhood is seen in the official word from the Father that we see in, in verse 10 of his eternal priesthood. In verse 10 we read, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The public acknowledgement occurred after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. Designated means to be called. It means to be saluted or addressed. It literally means before the marketplace. That the most public notification which could be orally expressed was expressed regarding Jesus and his priesthood by the Father. That God gave this formal recognition after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension into heaven. In an age of crumbling foundations, Jesus stands as a shining example for us. As a God of truth and a God of tears. Jesus is a God of truth. As God, Jesus is truth. And I'm afraid that there are many who claim faith in Christ, even many among us who are 
believing lies on a daily and weekly basis. We are, to, we are to tell ourselves and to tell each other the truth. There's a saying that goes like this. For every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, easy, elegant, and wrong. We live in a world of lies. Where the exact opposite of godliness is lifted up everywhere. Everywhere you turn. Where you hear the message You're not good enough. When you hear the message, you're worthless. Or even on the other side of the spectrum, you can be your own God. See, those messages do not come from God. They come from Satan, who is the father of lies. There's no truth in him. The truth is this. We are so sinful, Christ had to die. But we are so valuable to God, Christ wanted to die. You can put that on your fridge. Put that on your dashboard. Text message that to your friends. Nail that one to the doorpost of your your house. We are so sinful, Christ had to die. But we are so valuable to God, Christ wanted to die for us. And Jesus is a God of tears. As a man, he feels our pain. He took our pain. He shed real tears over our sin, and he shed real blood to pay for that sin. Look at 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 2, and verse 9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you have become the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with precious blood, as chapter 1 says. And look over at chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Jesus learned through suffering and we learn through suffering. We don't do so alone though. It's not us and Jesus in a room all by ourselves. We learn obedience through suffering in community. One of us suffers, all of us suffer. One of us rejoices, all of us rejoice. We are to share God's word in our lives with each other. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. That we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives because you had become very dear to us. But we will let each other down. We have let each other down. We will continue to let each other down. But Jesus will never let us down. We are to find our hope in Christ alone and then share what he gives us. Share that hope with a wanting world. There was a man, uh, Livio Labrescu, 
He was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, when he was a young boy, he and his family were forced to live in a Russian labor camp in Romania. And they lived in a ghetto there. And when he was 15, the ordeal was over, but for the rest of his life, he never took his freedom lightly. Uh, he became a scientist. He became a professor. And then he became an immigrant to Israel because of the communist persecution in his homeland. It got too much. Well, back in 1985, he and his wife came uh, to America for a sabbatical. They loved the state of Virginia. He had a teaching job at Virginia Tech. And so they decided they're going to spend the rest of their days in America. Well, on April 17th, just last week, it was, it was Holocaust Remembrance Day in, in, in Israel. I'm sure he was one American who knew well what day that was. Well, Professor Libreski was uh, uh, teaching in his class when a disturbed student began murdering 32 unarmed and innocent victims. Now, here's what the student said. They heard all this noise. They heard these gunshots. They knew there was going to be danger soon. The teacher, you probably heard this story, the teacher went and barred the door, held the door, and he told his students, go out the window, escape. And when the, all the students had gone out, after, and the, the gunman uh, overpowered the door and uh, shot and killed the professor. And uh, it was an uncommon, uh, unexpected death, but also filled with uncommon grace. Uh, you see, those actions uh, enabled a classroom of young adults to live. Now, we remember another Jewish man, a man who faced many trials, a man who lived under a wicked ruler, who was hunted down as a child. He faced threats and danger. He too was a teacher surrounded by students. Then came a day when the weight of the world of sin was laid upon him. And the hammer fell. And there were screams and there were uh, tears and there was terror. And he hung on a cross. He stayed there. Greater love has no man than this. No greater love and no fear of death. And he offers himself and he dies so that others might live. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He came back to life. And now he says to us, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You shall find rest for your souls with me. It's interesting. The writer of Hebrews is literally pleading with his hearers. They're in danger of a cowardly return back to the supposed security of the old days. And he's pleading with them to think again, to reconsider to find their rest in Christ alone. In today's world, in the world in which we live, we too have the same temptation laid before us. To opt for an easy life, or at least try to find it. When faced with a world system which is in direct opposition and hates all things that they see as intolerant and dogmatic about the objective truth 
of God's word. See, God wants us to make progress in our faith, not, not to regress. We must resist. Even if it means taking up a tiny little cross on behalf of our suffering Savior. It might feel big to us, but it's a tiny little cross. It's a small cross. We're to stand firm in the truth, in the midst of our tears. See, life will not get easier. You know that. We will, I hate saying this, but we will suffer and we will continue to suffer. I want it easy. But God's way to growth and glory is through pain and suffering. And heaven someday. Heaven someday. We can cling to the truth as we trust in Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I'm asking God to give me and you the grace to remember Jesus the next time we want to chew somebody out. The next time we want to pass judgment or the next time we want to throw in the towel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy. We thank you and praise you that you are a God of hope. And we thank you and praise you that you are a God of truth who also feels our pain because you took our pain. We thank you, Lord Jesus.